Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to the Felony Friday podcast. This is the show where we focus on injustices in the broken criminal justice system. We have a great show lined up for you today. My guest has taken a very controversial stance on a case that has grabbed national headlines over the past couple of years. And I'll introduce my guest in a moment, but before I do that, I want to remind our listeners where to find the show notes for today's episode. You can go to lionsofliberty.com slash FF8. During the course of the show, we're going to reference probably a lot of interviews, a lot of videos, and a lot of other content. And I want to make sure that you know where to find all that stuff. I'll post and link to all of it at lionsofliberty.com slash FF8. My guest today is John Ziegler. John is a nationally syndicated radio host, documentary filmmaker, director, and author. He is the co-host of The John and Leah Show, which began locally in Los Angeles in 2014 and is now syndicated nationally. It airs every Sunday evening. John also runs the website, The Framing of Joe Paterno. John, welcome to the Felony Friday podcast. Thanks for having me, John. John, as we discussed uh, when I reached out to you, I I wanted to get your opinions and talk about this Penn State scandal, this Jerry Sandusky scandal. And first, to kind of set the stage, because as as you know, a lot of people have one viewpoint of this. Most people, Penn State alumni or otherwise, believe that the Jerry Sandusky scandal is a dead issue. They believe largely what the media has reported and the free report concluded, which was that Joe Paterno and administrators at Penn State covered up for the crimes of a serial child molester, Jerry Sandusky, in order to protect the football program. I know that, that you disagree with this on many levels. I disagree with that too on many levels as well. But first, before we, we jump in and we start talking about the case and specific inconsistencies that you found, I just wanted to ask you why you decided to pursue this case. <laughs> you have no connections to Penn State. You're not an alumni. Why spend so much time on this uh, Jerry Sandusky scandal? Well, my wife has been asking that for the last couple of years. So it's a pretty good question. I went to Georgetown. I did grow up in Pennsylvania, but I was not even a big Penn State fan. I was a Notre Dame fan as a kid. So I have no connection to Penn State at all. And I live in Southern California. And I have done a couple documentary films prior to this on the news media, specifically in stories where the news media totally blew the narrative. And uh, they've been pretty well received. Uh, One you know, got me on the Today Show with Matt Lauer, where we introduced it. Uh, That was called Media Malpractice about the 2008 election. And I know the news media exceedingly well. And when this story broke in November 2011, it was very obvious to me that this story had all the markings of media malpractice. Decisions were being made exceedingly quickly on a subject that stirs great passion, where rationality often gets lost in a subject matter where the sports media has zero expertise and the sports media is moronic to begin with. I used to be a sportscaster myself, so I know what these people are like. These are not the people you want making decisions of guilt and innocence, especially in an incredibly short period of time with almost no information. And just the basic narrative, as we were told it in November 2011, made no sense I mean, my BS detector went off immediately. I've also, by the way, coached high school football. I've spent a year with a high school football team writing a book about it. I've 
I've covered pro football. I've covered college football. I know the football culture. And the idea that an assistant coach walked in on an old football legend who was retired at the time, Jerry Sandusky, raping a 10-year-old boy, ran away doing nothing, and then the next day went to Joe Paterno, of all people, and then Joe Paterno, at best, purposely did nothing and or covered it up with the help of Penn State administrators was just absurd. There was no chance that that actually occurred. And as I've investigated it, it is patently obvious that that did not occur. And that's where I started with this. I never imagined in a million years that now, you know, close now to five years later, four and a half years later, I guess, almost, I would still be embroiled in this because even I presumed at the time that Jerry Sandusky must be guilty of something. It is impossible for everybody to be this wrong. Well, as I got deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into it and ended up investigating every aspect of this case in a way that no one else bothered to do because no one wanted to check the math and interviewing Jerry Sandusky twice in prison, once with his wife there with him, and then appearing on the Today Show twice, including once with Dottie Sandusky, with Matt Lauer coming to her home for an hour-long interview, which you can catch online. If I could jump in there for a minute, John, I, I just want to get some background. So you interviewed Jerry Sandusky while in prison. Is that correct? Yeah, twice. I, I did so the first time in uh, early 2013, thinking that he was guilty. I went in there for three hours, plus I did a half-hour telephone interview with him. I recorded it surreptitiously against the rules of the Pennsylvania state prison system, which, to my knowledge, is the first time that that's ever happened in a Pennsylvania state maximum security prison. And somehow they didn't figure this out until almost a year, over a year later, even after I went on the Today Show and played clips from it, which was rather amusing. But that was a whole nother story of the cluster fart that was my end of this thing. That, But I recorded it on a pen. Uh, kind of like in a James Bond meets Barney Frank type of moment, which ended up causing me all sorts of technical problems. But I have the whole thing on record, uh, on audio. It, the transcript is at our website. Much of it's on YouTube or on our website. And I was not convinced of his innocence at all after I left, although my BS detector was going off again, thinking, wait a minute, this whole story doesn't make any sense. The narrative we were told about him can't be true for a number of reasons, and so then I spent another year before I interviewed him again in prison, this time with Dottie, his wife, uh, basically trying to disprove my gut instinct that it was possible that he was innocent. And I was unable to do so. And so I went back a second time and asked him some very pointed questions. And at that point, I became about 98% convinced he was innocent. Do you remember what questions particularly or what led you to think there that, that he might be innocent? You're saying 98% chance. You're, you're pretty sure at that point. I don't know what the number was. Maybe it was not quite 98 at that <laughs> point, but it was high going in. But I wanted to make sure because, you know, Dottie and I had talked about potentially going on the Today Show together. I wasn't going to do that unless I felt very confident that Jerry Sandusky was in fact innocent. And by the way, I'm not talking about reasonable doubt. I couldn't care less about reasonable doubt. I mean, I care about reasonable doubt, but I mean, I'm not going to put my ass on the line for reasonable doubt for a monster. And there's no doubt that Jerry Sandusky is not a monster. And I don't believe he's guilty of anything. But the, the question that I will always remember from the second interview in prison, and I think that any reasonable person was with me in that interview room 
uh, would probably come to the same conclusion I did. And you have to remember, this is not the only reason why I believe this. This is like the end of the race, not the beginning. This is after an enormous amount of research where I have very, very strong compulsion that he's innocent. I asked what I thought was a really good question, and I got the response, a better response than I could have possibly have asked for. And the question was this. I said to Jerry and Dottie together, what was the first moment that you remember thinking that this might not turn out okay for us? Now, you have to remember, if Jerry's guilty, and if Dottie knows it, which I'm sure she does not, that's I'm a thousand percent sure of that, then there's a hundred and one different moments, if not more than that, that would come to mind. But there's really only one moment that would fit the correct answer that would also fit my current narrative or belief of a narrative about Jerry Sandusky, which was that he is very naive, very trusting in the system, very trusting in God, a very religious person uh, who just could not possibly believe that this was going to happen to him. So when I asked the question, you got to remember, he's not even in the same, technically same room with us. We're separated by a wire screen and he's in handcuffs. He can't even touch his own uh, face because his hands are tied basically to his waist. And he starts bawling, which he had never done in, in any of the other interactions that I had with him. And he says it was the reading of the verdicts. And then uh, Dottie bawling even more than Jerry, repeats in great detail the exact same story of how she felt during the reading of the verdicts. And that was the first time she ever thought, my gosh, this might not turn out well for us. And so then as soon as I got out of prison, I called their attorney, Joe Amendola, immediately because you know I knew there would be no way that Jerry and Dottie could communicate <laughs> out of the prison to alert him somehow this was a big scam as to what he thought their answer to that question would be. And I said, I said, Joe, uh, you know, I asked the question, what was the first moment that uh, you thought that this might not turn out well for us? And uh, I said, Joe, what do you think they said? And Joe thought about it for four or five seconds. And he says, was it the reading of the verdicts? And I was like, okay, bingo. Uh, there we go. Because that answer is only consistent with one thing. And that's total innocence. Oh. Did Joe Amendola tell you when he thought himself that he had a chance to lose the case, that it wasn't going to turn out? Oh, he knew well before then that Jerry was cooked, not because Jerry's guilty, but because of the main thing that happened in this case, the firing of Joe Paterno. The firing of Joe Paterno ended any chance of Jerry Sandusky getting a remotely fair trial. And that firing was unfair. It was one of the most unjust things I've ever seen, if not the most unjust thing that didn't involve immediate death, although you could argue it, it caused his death a couple months later that I've ever uh, seen in my lifetime. Uh, but because of Joe Paterno's firing, there was no chance of Jerry Sandusky getting a fair trial, especially not seven months from his arrest. For seven months from the time. Imagine this, folks. Imagine if you were accused of a crime for which there is no evidence you committed it. And your former boss, a guy you haven't worked for for a decade, is a legend in your community. And he gets fired five days after your arrest for allegedly having some participation in covering your crimes up, or at least not acting responsibly towards them. 
And by the way, the president of your former employer, a very respected Graham Spanier, also effectively gets fired. What are the chances seven months later with a media firestorm that ensues that you're going to get a fair trial? Not to mention the fact that later that week, there's a candlelight vigil at Penn State for the so-called victims. Just before the next football game on that Saturday, there's a prayer at midfield with both teams <laughs> praying for these victims before we've ever seen one of them testify publicly, anyone other than the grand jury, which, by the way, wasn't very convinced by the number one accuser at the time because they didn't put down an indictment for the first two times he testified in this case to the grand jury. So there was zero chance at that point that Jerry Sandusky was going to get anything but convicted because state college as a community, understandably, felt it was their civic duty to show the rest of the world how against pedophilia they were, how against child molesters they were, and they were going to convict him come hell or high water. And that's what the jury did with no evidence. So, so let's talk about Joe Paterno for a minute. As I've heard you say in other interviews, you're watching this unfold from California. You're watching the firing of Joe Paterno. You're watching uh, Sandusky be indicted. At what point do you think that this case took a turn and Joe Paterno became the bad guy to be implicated in a conspiracy, in a cover-up, and then obviously eventually, well, he was fired, then he was implicated in the conspiracy with the free report. Was there something that turned, was there a statement made that made Joe Paterno the bad guy in this? Well, those first few days are so very important, and I'm sure I'm one of only if, you know, I don't, I don't have any people remember now moment for moment, exactly what happened. I know for a lot of Penn Staters, they probably remember most of it, but I devoted my life to this. So I remember all of it exceedingly well. I would say the number one thing that the average person should know, but doesn't, is that on the day that Sandusky was arrested, the woman who won the Pulitzer Prize in this case, Sarah Ganim, a local news reporter who's now at CNN, who did not deserve the Pulitzer Prize. She was a stooge for the prosecution, but that's another story we can get into later if you want to. But she wrote an article praising Joe Paterno for his handling of the Jerry Sandusky sex abuse suspicions. And she used an attorney general's office source as the backing for that assessment that Joe Paterno was being praised. That's on the day Sandusky was arrested. That was November 5th. November 9th, Joe Paterno was fired. Now, what happens in between? There are a lot of things that occur. There's a domino effect. There was a statement by the head of the state police about moral responsibility, which was completely and totally inappropriate. And I'm not sure how pre-designed that was. I'm not a conspiracy person. I mean, when we do framingpaterno.com, it's figurative. It's not literal. I'm not a conspiracy guy at all. I'm an anti-conspiracy conspiracy person. I don't think people are smart enough to pull off conspiracies. I think it might have been a, more of an accidental statement in a press conference where he was just trying to give the media what they wanted, which was obvious. They wanted something. Because the first couple of days of this story, it's important for people to remember, the story was not a media hit. It broke over a college football weekend and an NFL weekend, and there was no real interest in the news media and Jerry Sandusky. Who the hell is Jerry Sandusky? I barely remember him nationwide. So outside of State College, this was not a media hit. But when Joe Paterno started to become involved, and obviously 
uh, Tim Curley and Gary Schultz, the athletic director, and, and Gary Schultz, who, among other things, was the head of the campus police, once they get indicted, then, you know, it's closer to Paterno. But to me, the moment of no return in this story was the canceling of Joe Paterno's press conference on that Tuesday morning. And Penn State, this is a comedy of errors. And maybe on purpose, maybe not, who knows, maybe somewhere in between. But Penn State puts out a statement Monday night saying Paterno's going to have his press conference, but there'll be no questions about the Sandusky matter, or basically implying that there'll be no questions about the Sandusky matter. Now, that's the worst thing you can do to the news media, because now they're smelling blood. They think, whoa, wait a minute, we're not allowed to ask that? We're going to damn right sure, well, make sure we're there, and we're going to ask only that, because now you're challenging them. As it turns out, apparently Joe Paterno had every intention of being able to speak about the Sandusky matter. But for some reason, in the chaos, that statement got put out by Penn State. So the next morning, all the media is there waiting, and Paterno's press conference gets canceled. Now, I have been told by Graham Spanier directly that he did not cancel that press conference, that it was John Surma, who was then the the vice chairman of the board of trustees, who, who the next day would end up announcing Joe Paterno's firing uh, in a basically what I perceive as a coup d'etat of the board of trustees at Penn State. Sermon is seeing this crisis. Uh, he's the head of U.S. Steel. He is feeling as if, you know, no one else is capable of, of taking over and, and manning the ship in this troubled waters. Uh, he also is a longtime Paterno critic. Well, not longtime, but a recent vehement Paterno critic, along with his brother, Vic Surma, who had made numerous very disparaging remarks online about Joe Paterno. I believe that they thought that Joe Paterno had ruined the life of Vic Surma's son, who briefly played for him and ended up years later overdosing. So I think that all of this plays into a, where Surma, who had been looking to get rid of Joe Paterno for years, according to Spanier, and Spanier told me, Surma would ask him on a yearly basis, when are we going to get rid of Joe? I think Surma sees this crisis as an opportunity. He sees, he probably rationalizes that we need to get ourselves completely separated from this. And that means get rid of Joe Paterno, which just happens to fit his agenda. He cuts Paterno's balls off by not letting him speak. Scott Paterno, uh, Joe Paterno's son and, and his attorney on part of this and alleged PR guy, I think panics. He's in over his head. He should have held his own press conference or had his own interview with ESPN and said, go screw yourself, Penn State. But I think Scott was afraid of Joe getting fired for cause, which would be ridiculous, would never have happened. But a whole series of bad decisions get made and Joe Paterno doesn't fight back. And without him fighting back and him looking you know, rather weak as an old man and with the news media on a firestorm of unprecedented proportions, Penn State was able to convince her, John Surma, who, by the way, used the New York Times for his own purposes to create the impression that the board was losing support for Joe Paterno. Surma was able to convince, with the help of Governor Tom Corbett, who, of course, was the, the attorney general when the Sandusky case started and who clearly had a massive conflict of interest here. Corbett and John Surma are able to convince 
in a very hastily called meeting where some of Joe Paterno's biggest supporters weren't even there in person. They were on cell phones, some of them. Let me jump in for a minute. Paterno, correct me if I'm wrong, but Paterno had actually said earlier in the day he'd issue a statement saying that he was going to retire at the end of the season, correct? Yeah, but that was actually already known to people who were in the know. Um, And I think that that statement was a political mistake. And I don't know how much... Scott Paterno had to do with that. I don't know how much Joe did. I don't know how much the PR firm that they hired that day, the day that Joe Paterno got fired, somehow they didn't get fired after that. I don't know. It's amazing. But yeah, that statement, you know, that was the statement with the infamous, I wish I had done more, which was misinterpreted. The shot across the bow, the board of trustees saying, you have more important things to do than worry about me. I don't don't think that's the exact wording, but close. I know that several board members took that as an affront to their authority. And I think they used that to rationalize uh, doing what they wanted to do in a panic situation, which was to take the cowardly and weak way out and get rid of this problem. Because you have to remember, when people are in a panic, you know, they go to safety. And if the governor is telling them to do this, which he was, and, you know, the head of U.S. Steel is telling them and the New York Times is telling them because all these people think the New York Times is legitimate and is to be believed. And, you know, and all the New York Times is doing is echoing what John Surma told them. It's an echo chamber of a very small number of influential people here creating the impression that Joe Paterno has to go. Oh, it was the absolute dumbest thing they could have done from every possible perspective. But once Joe Paterno is fired, then everybody perceives that Penn State is accepting guilt. And then, by the way, the next morning in the Business Insider, among other publications, there's a headline, Penn State now on the hook for $100 million. $100 million, that was what they used in the headline, which has turned out to be almost exactly right, $100 million for the victims of Jerry Sandusky's abuse. That's before there's ever been a preliminary hearing. (laughs) What we have at that point is a 23-page leaked grand jury presentment, most of which turned out to be inaccurate. And so at that point, there is no real chance of any justice in this case, because now every trial lawyer in the state and beyond knows that Fort Knox is wide open. And uh, that's when the floodgates open for accusers to come forward and get paid. And a lot of them have. And I'm quite sure that uh, the vast majority of them have absolutely no case whatsoever. Let's talk about the actual trial itself. The Sandusky trial was very fast. Uh, The prosecutors went from indictment to trial. It was, I think, like four or five months really leaving, I think, no time for investigation or discovery. You would think this could violate the right to affect representation. Is there any precedent that you know of for a case like this going to trial this quickly? Have you ever seen or heard of anything like this before? Oh, yeah. The Salem witch trials, I think, were, um, <laughs> were, were I think, very similar in every possible way. I mean, not one continuance for the defense which is unheard of. That's unheard of, especially in a high profile case like this. For it to be over from the time of arrest to the time of conviction in seven months. I mean, consider this. The administrators who were charged at the same time, Tim Curley and Gary Schultz, four and a half years later, haven't come close to a trial. Haven't come close. And they just had their charges dropped, correct? Most of those charges are dropped, but the the state is pretending that they want to try to reinstate them. I don't think that's going to happen. But the point is, 
four and a half years later, they haven't come close to seeing a trial. Jerry was convicted in seven months without a continuance. And in fact, I mean, it's even less, seven months is deceiving. Because I mean, whenever I say that to Joe Amendola, the defense attorney, he gets upset because he's like, John, it was actually worse than that. I didn't get full discovery until like two months before the trial started. It might've been three, but it was two or three months at most. And in a case this complex, that is critical because the entire case rested on credibility. And it was the credibility of eight different accusers who ended up testifying. It wasn't 10, as is often misstated by the press routinely. It was eight. Two of the 10 were, quote unquote, unknown people, unknown because the episodes never occurred. That's why they didn't have an accuser to take the witness stand, including the infamous Mike McQuarrie episode, which I hope we'll get into. But when you have eight accusers and the entire case is someone's credibility, time is everything because effectively the burden of proof has been shifted onto you to prove they're lying. So how do you prove someone's lying? Well, it takes a lot of time and research an investigation, especially when you're dealing with a, an accuser who's inherently sympathetic, the news media has already said, you got to believe this person. And, you know, all the other things we've already discussed are creating these, this atmosphere of needing a conviction. The reality is that that was critical and that alone should have caused a new trial. But there's never going to be a new trial ordered by anyone in the state of Pennsylvania because it's just too politically toxic. Um, and this is the most politically toxic case I have ever seen in my life. Jerry Sandusky would have been in a much better situation legally if he had actually killed multiple of his accusers than the because he would get he would probably have not gone on trial yet. Uh, just simply because bizarrely, we react more emotionally to child sex abuse. Not that I'm in any way, shape or form soft on child sex abuse. It's just for some bizarre reason, we don't consider murder to be nearly as bad as child sex abuse. So if he had actually killed several of these accusers with the same kind of lack of evidence that he had in, in the child sex abuse case, he would have been in better shape legally. That's how crazy this case is. Absolutely crazy case. So just to get the numbers right here. So at the trial, there were 10 accusers, no. right? No. I just said that. The media reports 10 all the time. There were 10 incidents, but eight only actual victims. There were eight people who testified to some semblance of alleged child sex abuse. Now, in a normal case, in a normal case, you might be able to say, well, you know, that's pretty good. We were able to find eight out of the 10 episodes that we were made aware of, we were able to find the accuser, right? This is not a normal case. <laughs> this case has been reported everywhere for months and there's millions of dollars on the table for anybody who comes forward, especially if there's a conviction. So the idea that there are, at this point, when Jerry Zanuski has now lost every semblance of a benefit of the doubt, that there are accusers out there who were abused in major episodes like the McQuarrie episode and they didn't come forward and weren't found by the prosecution is laughable, right? It's laughable. It didn't happen. The reason why those two episodes, and those were key episodes, the two that there weren't accusers, the McQuarrie episode and the so-called Janitor episode, 
neither of which happened in any way, shape, or form like we were told. And that's why there was no quote-unquote victim to come forward and testify. Because if they had happened, I can guarantee you, somebody would have come forward for their three or four million dollars. Especially under the circumstances of this case, where you were allowed to stay anonymous, the media protected you to the end of the earth. And I mean to the end of the earth. I mean, I went on the Today Show and I wasn't even allowed to say one of the names of somebody who it wasn't even technically an accuser at that time, uh, the guy who was actually in the shower when Mike McQueary uh, saw Jerry Sandusky and who says nothing ever happened. I had every right in the world to say his name, and the Today Show wouldn't let, even let me say his name. So there was no reason at all for an, an accuser to not come forward, whether it was for justice or for money or whatever. It, it's absurd. It's an absurdity. And the prosecution pretended that, oh, you know, in fact, this is an exact phrase used by prosecutor in in closing, which is being used by Jerry's lawyers in his current appeal, among many things. He actually says, only known to God, only known to God, (laughs) which is laughable as if somebody out there somewhere is walking around and hasn't heard about the fact that Jerry Sandusky, who had raped him, is now on trial for those crimes. And gee, wouldn't it be a good idea to come forward? Ridiculous. But that's the kind of ridiculous lack of logic that the prosecution was based on. So victim number two has not come forward. And for our listeners who might not be that familiar with this case, Victim number two is the one that probably all of you have heard of who've read the headlines of this case. He was the one that, as John was saying, Mike McQuarrie heard him and Jerry Sandusky in the shower, ran out, went to his father's house with uh, his father, had a a family friend, a, a doctor there, and they told him to go see Joe Paterno. I think that Saturday he went to see Joe Paterno, met with Joe Paterno, told him vaguely what happened, and Paterno directed him to Curly and then to Schultz, and then Curly and Schultz went on and uh, talked to the Spaniard as well, and uh, the cops were, were not notified of that. That's a fairly good assessment. Now, the person who was in that shower was named Alan Myers. Alan Myers never testified at trial. However, he did give multiple statements, one to the police, at least one to the police, might have actually been two to the police before Jerry got arrested, in the statement to the police, he defended Jerry Sandusky to the hilt. This was just, just before Jerry's arrest and ended the interview saying, I think you're trying to get me to lie about Jerry Sandusky. I will never say anything bad about Jerry Sandusky. This is the same Alan Myers who wrote letters to the editor in multiple Pennsylvania newspapers defending Jerry Sandusky after news of the grand jury had leaked that spring, late that March in a Sarah Ganim article. And so then after Jerry gets arrested, he goes into Joe Amendola's office, not once, but twice with his mother and gives an extensive statement, which you can find at our website, framingpaterno.com, to Joe Amendola's FBI-trained former police officer investigator, saying there is absolutely no chance that Mike McQueary has this story right. I was there that night. He gives information only the McQueary quote unquote, victim or victim number two could possibly have. And his statement could not be less ambiguous. He's mystified as to what the hell Mike McQuarrie is talking about. And he is glowing in his praise of Jerry Sandusky. And there are a whole list of things that happen after this 
episode in the shower that are completely inconsistent with any abuse having occurred. For instance, Alan Myers, who was not 10 years old at the time, he was almost 14. A couple years after the episode, he asks Jerry to be his father, standing as his father at his senior high school football game, which he does. That next spring, he asked Jerry Sandusky to speak at his high school graduation as a commencement speaker, which Jerry Sandusky does. He then lives with the Sandusky's for three months as he goes to Penn State, which where he got help getting in by Jerry Sandusky. He then goes into the Marine Corps. While he's in the Marine Corps, Jerry's mother dies. And from his barracks in North Carolina, Alan Myers drives 10 and a half hours each way to Jerry's mother's funeral. Then he, he gets married himself at a young age, still as a Marine, which I think is significant on a couple of different levels. And who does he invite to his wedding? Jerry and Dottie Sandusky. The photo of Jerry Sandusky and Alan Myers together at that wedding is the photo used in the internet version of Jerry Sandusky's resignation letter from the Second Mile Charity. Now, come on, people. Use your brains. That's not a guy who got raped in a shower. That's just not None of that is remotely consistent with it, especially when there's no evidence to it. And even Mike McQuarrie's own testimony isn't consistent with it. I mean, there's only a couple of things that could actually have happened here. Either one, Alan Myers is lying and, and he was raped and he's hiding it for some reason. Or Mike McQuarrie is lying and he didn't hear what he said he saw or some mixture of uh, McQuarrie being confused about the past. So would Mike McQuarrie have any incentive to be dishonest with police when he was initially questioned or any incentive to lie in front of a grand jury? Well, here's what I think happened. And to answer your question, short answer is yes, but here's what I believe happened. And I've spent way, way more time thinking about this than anybody probably ever should have. Well, here's what I think happened. I think McQueary goes into the locker room and he hears slapping sounds in the shower. It's late on a Friday night and I think McQuarrie is thinking in his head, he's going to see, now why he would think this is weird, but I believe this is what he thought. I think he's expecting to see a man and a woman having sex. Now, that's pretty weird to begin with, that a man and a woman, you know, some assistant coach was having a, you know, a sexual fling with a woman in the Penn State locker room on a Friday night. But okay, I guess that's theoretically plausible. I mean, you know, I've been around enough football locker rooms to know that stranger things have happened than that, especially among football coaches. So he's expecting that based upon what he hears. So when he turns the corner and looks through a mirror, this is his own testimony, looks through a mirror, probably a steamy mirror because the shower's on. <laughs> he looks through a mirror through a very narrow opening in the shower. And instead of seeing a man and a woman, he sees a man and a boy, a boy whose age he badly misidentifies in the two or three seconds by his own testimony. He gets to see whatever he's seeing. I think that that expectation played a huge role in his reaction to what he saw. So he was clearly upset by what he saw, all right? Remembering being upset played an incredibly important role here. But it's important to note, he leaves the boy there. He doesn't ask any questions. Yeah, it's also important to note it's pretty weird that Jerry Sandusky is in the shower naked with a boy. I mean, that alone is, all right, is pretty well, strange. Hold on. I'll get to that, all right? I want to address that because that's, okay. to a lot of people, 
they never get past that. But I, I can explain. I, I think I can explain that. But let's deal with this one at a time. Okay. So what McQueary does not do there is, I think, very telling. You got to remember, he's, I think, 27 years old at the time. He's six foot four. He is in great shape. Sandusky is in his late 50s and naked. If he's really seeing any sort of an assault, he is at the very least confronting Sandusky and making sure the boy is okay. None of that happened. All right? Instead, he, he gets out and he's weirded out. Here's what I think happens. I think he's weirded out and he doesn't know what to do. And he calls his dad, Dr. Dranoff, who you alluded to. He speaks to both of them. Importantly, Dranoff testifies a decade later. See, this is also very important that people don't understand. This all happens a decade before anyone testifies about it. And they got the date, the month, and the year wrong, McQuarrie did, which is incredibly important for reasons I'll get to in a second. So Dranoff testifies that he asked McQuarrie in that conversation three times, did you see a sex act? And McQuarrie says no, all three times. So they tell him, all right, go see Joe Paterno. Not the police. Not the police, which is where you would go if you saw a crime. You go to Joe Paterno if you saw something you didn't feel comfortable about and you think he should know about it. Now, why would it be imperative for Mike McQuarrie to go see Joe Paterno on that date in particular? See, one of the many things that went wrong here and why the truth got lost is because we had the wrong date when the story broke. This is incredibly critical because Mike McQuarrie originally thought this happened March 1st of 2002. It did not. It happened February 9th of 2001. Now, this is important for two main reasons. Number one, I would submit to you that if you saw a legend raping a boy, you'd remember the year. You would especially remember whether it happened before 9-11 or after 9-11, and he gets that wrong. He places it after 9-11 and in the wrong year, the wrong month, and the wrong day. That's critical to how important this was to Mike McQuarrie at the time. More importantly, perhaps, is what the significance of February 9, 2001 would have meant had we known it when the story broke. Had we known it at that time, we would have been able to look and go, well, wait a minute. What just happened two days before on February 7th of 2001? Hmm. Kenny Jackson left Penn State as the wide receivers coach to take a job with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Mike McQuarrie was a graduate assistant looking for a job. As a matter of fact, three and a half years later, Mike McQuarrie would become the wide receivers coach at Penn State. Not that year, though. He would remain a graduate assistant that year. I submit, and Jay Paterno was the first person that brought this to my attention. And at the time, I thought this was crazy, but now I'm a firm believer in it, that what really happened here is that John McQuarrie, Mike McQuarrie's dad, knowing the Kenny Jackson job is open, decides that it would be a really great idea for Mike to go to Joe Paterno, get some valuable FaceTime, show him what a great Boy Scout he is by reporting a guy who everybody knew Joe Paterno didn't like, who's no longer an assistant coach, has no ability to have any sort of retribution against Mike because he's retired. And the reality is that this might jog Joe into saying, hey, by the way, the Kenny Jackson job is open. Maybe we should talk about that, which didn't happen. And the reason why that's incredibly significant, John, is had there been a cover-up, 
had this is incredibly important. Had there been a cover up of any sort, the first thing that would have happened is Mike McQuarrie would have gotten Kenny Jackson's job because that's the job he wanted. That's the job he got three and a half years later. And instead, they let the only witness to this incredible cover-up remain a lowly grad assistant when a job that fit his capabilities had opened up two days before. That's not possible. There was no cover-up, and there was no assault. And Mike McCreary never said there was an assault until 10 years later, when he gets a call from his wife saying the investigators want to talk to you, he panics. Why? Not because he's like, oh, my God, someone finally wants to talk to me about Jerry Sandusky. He's panicked because that April of that year, he had been sending naked pictures of his penis to a woman, not his wife, through a Penn State phone. And he presumed that they had found that out. Now, you got to put yourself in his position. So is that story out there? How do you know that that piece of information? I know that from multiple sources at the highest levels, but I can prove it. Just go to YouTube and put in John Ziegler, Don Vanatta of ESPN. I have Don Vanatta on record, on audio, telling me that he had found out the exact same thing. He was going to report it in ESPN, the magazine, in his profile on Mike McQuarrie. He was bragging about it. He could not have been more clear about it. And then mysteriously, ESPN cuts that out of the story. And we have another interview with Vanatta reacting to that after that critical piece of information was edited out of the Mike McQuarrie profile. So this is not some sort of rumor or some conspiracy theory. This is as real as it gets. And so that creates a situation where Mike McQuarrie, if this gets out, his marriage is over, his career is over. He is feeling incredibly vulnerable when he goes in to talk to investigators. When investigators tell him they want to talk about Jerry Sandusky, he's thrilled. Okay. Now, investigators tell him, you have to remember how this all works psychologically. If you're Mike McQuarrie, 10 years ago, you saw something that made you feel weird. You weren't sure what it was. You reported it, never thought much about it again, so much so that you didn't remember the date, the month, and the year. But 10 years later, someone who you trust, investigators who have power over you, who you're thrilled, don't want to talk to you about naked pictures you've been sending through a Penn State phone. They tell you that they've got a kid named Aaron Fisher who is alleging having had sex with Jerry Sandusky over a three-year period. We believe Sandusky's a pedophile. We can't find a non-victim witness. Can you help us out? What do you do if you're Mike McQuarrie? What do you do, especially if they're twisting your arm? Hey, you heard slapping sounds. You sure? That certainly sounds like Jerry's raping the boy, doesn't it, Mike? I think it's very easy to understand how a football coach in a panic situation ends up getting manipulated into a story that was not true, that he thought he thought was for the greater good because he got convinced incorrectly that Jerry was somehow a pedophile and that it all spun out of control because once he's on the record, there's no going back. That's what I think happened with Mike McQuarrie. Okay, just to close out a couple things on that victim number two. So victim number two did not testify at the trial, but did they receive money, were they compensated? Yes, they were. And as a matter of fact, the story of how that happened, I think, is very, very telling. He ends up coming forward after the trial. 
his lawyer puts out a statement after the trial that victim two has come forward, that he's a victim, that he's trying to get a settlement. Well, he does so through Andrew Shubin, who is a Penn State, or not a Penn State, a state college attorney of much repute, who has represented at least nine accusers in this case, including Matt Sandusky, who is a total fraud. And it's very clear from the record that even the the state investigators, the attorney general investigators, did not believe Alan Meyer's story of having been abused. They wrote in their report that they thought that Shubin had written his story of abuse for him. So the reason why the prosecution pretends that there is no victim two is that they don't want Alan Myers to be victim number two, even though Alan Myers has to be victim number two for a hundred different reasons that I won't bore you with, unless you want to ask me specifically. But I could tell you there is no plausible, logical explanation for anyone else being victim number two than Alan Myers. And one of the reasons I know is how it is that I found out that it was Alan Myers. Jerry Sandusky didn't tell me. I figured it out and had to go to Jerry Sandusky because he didn't want to tell me. I figured it out through, you know, some piecing together of the puzzle. And that's the only reason why we know it's Alan Myers, frankly. It would never be known publicly if that had not occurred. So the reality is this. Alan Myers flipped into an accuser by an attorney named Andrew Shubin because Alan realized as an ex-Marine with two DUIs and no job and a wife that he needed money and that he couldn't do anything to save Jerry. He might even been convinced somehow that other people had been abused by Jerry and that maybe Jerry was intending to abuse him and just never got around to it or whatever rationalization Alan Myers used. But the reality is Alan Myers flipped after he no longer would feel as if he had blood on his hands for having put his friend who never abused him, Jerry Sandusky, in prison. And it's pretty obvious to me that that's what happened here. So even if the victim two incident never occurred, there's many other victims. No, there's not. That's not true either. See, you've bought into a myth. There's many other victims. No, no, no. When you break it down, there aren't. This is how few victim, quote unquote, victims there are. When Jerry Sandusky gets arrested, everyone thinks there's eight. Well, no. Number two, I just told you about. Number eight is the janitor episode. There was no accuser. There was actually six people who had testified. Of those six, only two alleged anything that could be clearly defined as a sex act. The other four would be called grooming or things that could easily just simply be exaggerated or misunderstandings or boundary issues. So only two, Aaron Fisher, victim number one, and victim number four are the only two that make that statement at the time of Jerry's arrest before there's any direct, clear expectation of money from Penn State. And interestingly, victim number four at trial, a tape recording which was accidentally recorded, which should have been the Perry Mason moment of the entire trial, which the media completely spiked, barely even reported. But this was amazing. Accidentally recorded a conversation between the investigators interviewing victim number four who were unable to get victim number four 
to acknowledge that he had ever had a sex act with Jerry Sandusky. And victim number four's lawyer, why he had a lawyer there, I have no idea. I'll let you decide for yourself whether that's fishy. But the lawyer for victim four and the investigators conspire on tape, not realizing they're being recorded because they thought they had turned the recorder off, conspire to lie to him to get him to say he had sex with Sandusky, which eventually he sort of kind of does. That's laughable. That's your many victims there, John. Wouldn't that be a crime? Wouldn't that be a crime itself? Well, you've <laughs> apparently when it comes to the, an effort to convict Jerry Sandusky, you're allowed to do basically anything you want. But let's just be clear. When you say there were many other victims, no, there are only two who are at the time of Jerry's arrest, clearly alleging a sex act. And I've investigated number one, Aaron Fisher, extensively. And there's not a chance in the world he's telling the truth. All you got to do is ask his friends and even some of his family members. Even now that he's rich, I got people on the record, very, 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 very close to him, on video, on audio, saying there's no chance Aaron Fisher was abused by Jerry Sandusky. And he's the prime victim. And you know Aaron Fisher lacks credibility because the prosecution basically dropped him like a hot potato once they got more accusers to come forward after the arrest because they themselves didn't feel comfortable with Aaron Fisher because he comes from a, a horrific family of, that has abuse in it. His stepfather's in prison right now for 100 counts of child molestation. Uh, his mom is a welfare queen and an alcoholic and party animal. And there is zero chance that Aaron Fisher is telling the truth. There is no way. And you read his book. I did a press conference outside of Jerry's last major hearing where I gave away Aaron Fisher's book to members of the news media. Because to me, when you read Aaron Fisher's book, it's the greatest argument for Jerry's innocence. Because there is no way you can rationally and open-mindedly read that book if you know anything about this case and believe that Jerry's guilty because so much of it is so completely and totally absurd and inconsistent with basic logic and the facts of the rest of this case. Can you give some more background on victim number one, Aaron Fisher? How did he know Jerry Sandusky? I'm assuming he knew him through the second mile and uh, became acquainted with him that way. Um, can you just give the background Aaron story? Aaron Fisher was, as I said, very bad family situation. Becomes part of the second mile, becomes close to Jerry at about 12 years old. He alleges now, and it's important to point out, his story has changed numerous times in every possible way. He has changed the timetable. He has changed the nature of the abuse. He has changed the number of times the abuse occurred. But his final story at trial is that for three years, when he was 12, 13, and 14, or I guess maybe into his almost to his 15th year, during those years, he and Jerry engaged in at least 100, 100 episodes of oral sex, 100. Now, this is ludicrous on so many different levels, but the number one level is that none of Aaron's friends, including a very close friend of his who's in the military, who was an abuse victim himself, who were very close to Aaron during these three years, thinks there's any chance this actually happened because Aaron showed zero of the normal signs and still to this day shows 
zero of the normal signs. I have a photograph that Aaron posted, or I guess his fiance posted to Facebook, of him lying in a bed of cash, giving the middle finger to the camera, specifically referencing this case. I mean, his mother, to me, forget about, people will believe whatever they want to believe about an accuser, right? Because they want to believe the accuser's telling the truth, and almost any action by an accuser, the experts will somehow rationalize into saying, well, that's consistent with being abused. Well, here's what's not consistent with being abused. If you believe this story, his mom, a woman by the name of Dawn Fisher, would have done the following things. She would have brought a sex abuse, well, a sex abuse monster named Eric Daniels into her family by marrying him and making him Aaron's stepfather for several years. And by the way, just before Jerry comes into Aaron's life. So he's in jail for a hundred counts of child molestation. So she brings that monster into the home. She then uses an even more allegedly hideous monster, Jerry Sandusky as her babysitter for three years while she goes out and parties because that's what she did. She pawned Aaron off on Jerry for three years. And under her watch for three years, the guy she's using as a babysitter is abusing her son a hundred times and she has no clue about it. Not a clue at all. Not a shred of a suspicion. Nothing that even makes her go, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. And so at the end of this, she finds out, oh my gosh, a second serial child molester I brought into my son's home. And then her son gets a settlement from Penn State. And what happens? She buys a huge house. She buys four different cars, not just any cars, but a Porsche, a Mercedes, a Cadillac Escalade. And that's not even her primary vehicle. I would submit to you, there's not a mother on the planet, on the planet, that wouldn't have too much guilt under the circumstances I just laid out, which is their story. If that story is true, any mother in the world would have far too much guilt to even dream of doing any of those things, buying any of those things with their son's money that I just referenced. And I'll tell you why she doesn't have the guilt. It's not because she's not human, although she's she's not a particularly good human. It's because she knows it didn't happen. Because I have the story of the next door neighbor on tape, on video, explaining exactly the moment that the story started to materialize. And it was not a story of child sex abuse. It was a story of Aaron trying to get out of spending a Saturday night with a boring old man, Jerry Sandusky, when he wanted to go out with his friends and try to get girls. Because the Aaron Fisher is sex obsessed. He claims to have had sex, which is a typical of his veracity. He claims to his friends to have had sex with 300 girls. This is not a credible person. And when pressed, I think even the prosecution would probably uh, acknowledge this. But it's important to point out if Aaron's lying, which he is, the whole case is crap because he was the only accuser for two years and everything else is based on him. McQuarrie is based on him. All the other accusers that came forward, the investigators used Aaron to convince them that this was real. So, John, was any of this brought up at the trial, specifically 
the neighbor you spoke with, Aaron's friend you spoke with, who said that he's lying. Did they testify at the trial? The neighbor testified, but unfortunately, partially because of what we talked about before, with all the time constraints, the neighbor was baffled as to why Joe Amendola never met with him before he testified, didn't ask him any of the the right questions. He fully anticipated he was going to get called back to testify again because they never got to any of the good stuff. And then the next thing he knew, Jerry was convicted. As far as the friends, believe it or not, and this is mind-blowing to people who followed the case, but at least one very close friend of Aaron's was fully aware of the trial, didn't even know Aaron was the accuser until the book comes out after the trial, because Aaron never talked about it. Now, of course, the you know accuser apologist will say, well, he just didn't want to talk about it because it's so painful, or he didn't want to talk about it because he didn't want people close to him to be able to question him and go, what the hell are you talking about? I saw you and Jerry together. You never said anything about this. You never gave any indication there was anything wrong. And so Aaron just pretends it never occurred. That's the more likely scenario when you look at the totality of the evidence or lack thereof. Well, John, unfortunately, we're running out of time. I think there's a couple more paths we could go down and maybe I'll have you back on for another show at a later date. Just one thing I wanted to follow up on I guess my stance on this or the way I've looked at this for quite a while is from the beginning, I thought that Joe Paterno was railroaded and he'd done nothing wrong. He didn't deserve to get fired. Through this interview, listening to you today and doing some research for this interview, it's really opened my eyes to see. I mean, I'm not going to say that I think that Jerry Sandusky is innocent. I can't say that yet. But I think at the very least, he deserves an appeal. He deserves another trial. Do you think there's any chance that that'll happen? Well, the answer to your question is, I do not see that happening in the state of Pennsylvania because of the political toxicity of the case. There are so many legitimate legal reasons why Jerry Sandusky should get a new trial. By the way, there would be very legitimate legal reasons for him to get a new trial, even if he was guilty. And guilt or innocence has very little to do, unfortunately, with this part of the appeals process, which is called a petition for post-conviction relief. I personally believe that the judge currently in the case, who, by the way, is the <laughs> the judge who presided over the actual trial, has a massive conflict of interest. I mean, he's being asked to overturn his own trial, the biggest trial he ever presided over by far. That's not going to happen. And I actually think that that judge is purposely putting the air out of the ball. I think they all hope Jerry dies so that this can just go away. So the reality is, and I've urged, and no one's going to listen to me, but I have urged Jerry and his attorneys, and his attorneys and I do not get along, but his attorney, for some reason, is trusting of this judge. I am not anymore. I think that judge made it very clear in some of their most recent rulings that they have no intention of ever granting Jerry a new trial, that this is really about a totally different agenda. The reality is, in Pennsylvania, nobody's ever going to put their ass in the line to allow Jerry Sandusky to have a new trial. In a federal court where judges do not have the same political pressure. They're there for life. They're not in Pennsylvania in all likelihood. It's a totally different dynamic. I think that a new trial for Jerry Sandusky is a slam dunk. But will Jerry live long enough to get it into federal court? I urge him on a routine basis that he uh, needs to focus everything on trying to stay alive until that happens. But obviously, 
you know, who knows what's going to happen with regard to his health. And he's living in a very, 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 very difficult set of circumstances, both physically and mentally. So I hope he'll survive to at least have his day in federal court. But the way this case has gone, if that happens, it'll be the first time anything's gone right since the very beginning. John, we've covered an absolute insane amount of information. People that, you know, probably were not very familiar with this trial, their heads are probably about to explode. Can you share with my audience where they can go to find more of your work, specifically on the Sandusky scandal, but also any other projects you're working on? Well, yeah, for this story, just go to Framing Paterno. That's www.framingpaterno.com. And again, this is not a conspiracy theory. The framing is not literal. It's figurative. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I frankly think everybody else is the conspiracy theorist. I'm using basic logic and reason and evidence here. And my scenario, the story of what I believe happened here, makes a hell of more sense than the story anybody else tried to tell here. Because everybody else's story runs into massive evidentiary and logical roadblocks My story does not. My story is actually far more simple. And the irony is it ought to make people a lot happier, even though it doesn't. My story pisses people off, bizarrely, even though I'm giving you good news. Guess what? Nobody got sexually abused here. There was a lot of injustice, but it wasn't because of sexual abuse. Yeah, it certainly is a crazy story, John. Thank you for you know the work you're doing looking into this. There is no one else who has done as much research and has as much information, has conducted as many interviews on this topic as you. And I thank you for that. No matter how you feel, how our listeners feel about this case, they should be thankful that John Ziegler has been willing to put the time in to learn, to try to uncover the truth of what happened in this case. So thank you for that, John. And thank you for coming on the show. Anytime. Thanks, John. All right. I will link to framingpaterno.com and everything else we talked about in the show notes. You'll be able to find the show notes at lionsofliberty.com slash FF8. Normally, I don't do a post-show wrap-up, but this is a very serious and emotional topic. Child rape is an unspeakable thing. But we can't allow ourselves to be blinded by emotion when seeking justice. Now, I follow this case probably a lot closer than most people listening. I went to Penn State, graduated from Penn State, and I still go back often for football games. And the one thing I've always wanted in this case is for the truth to be known. And at this point, I do not believe the full truth is known. I haven't believed the media's narrative that Penn State covered up for a child molester in order to save a football program. That just doesn't make rational sense to me, that grown men would make that decision. Leaving a child molester to roam free to cover up, to save a football program. It just doesn't make any sense. But up until recently, I thought I was 100% sure that Jerry Sandusky was guilty. In fact, I was 100% sure that Jerry Sandusky was guilty. And if Jerry Sandusky did one one hundredth of what he is convicted of, then he deserves to rot in jail. But it's hard to view and listen to all of the content that John Ziegler has put together and produced, and not start to question some of these convictions against Jerry Sandusky. And so I encourage you to check out John Ziegler's work and come to your own judgment about the victim's stories and about Sandusky's guilt. Like I said, I'm not convinced that Jerry Sandusky is innocent, but with all of these questions that John Ziegler's work has brought up, all these questions surrounding the victim's stories and these charges, he should get an appeal. And if the charges against him are true, then it should be easy to prove his guilt in the court of law. 
Now, this episode was a bit longer than normal. I try to keep the episodes to about a half hour in length. This went to about an hour. If you like this length and you'd like to hear more hour-long episodes, please provide some feedback. You can email me, felonyfriday at lionsofliberty.com. Please also be sure to follow the Lions of Liberty on Facebook and Twitter. You can join our private Facebook group, the Lions of Liberty Forum, simply by searching Lions of Liberty Forum in the search bar right there on Facebook. The forum will pop up, click join, and we will approve you as quickly as we possibly can. Please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes and Stitcher. When I say subscribe, I mean subscribe to the Lions of Liberty podcast. You will get every episode of Felony Friday downloaded to your phone when you subscribe to the Lions of Liberty podcast. You will also get two other shows, our Monday and Wednesday show that we also have in our Lions of Liberty podcast feed. Check out the Felony Friday archive at lionsofliberty.com slash felonyfriday. You'll be able to find all my previous Felony Friday articles, all my previous Felony Friday podcasts right there. So please, I encourage you to check them out. Give me some feedback. I'd appreciate that. Thank you again. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up in the fires of liberty burning.